Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome as we embark on another adventure into the world of science. And today, one of those rare events, the question that I asked this morning on the trivia show was not answered. And therefore, you guys get a chance at uh, getting it correct and showing that our listeners are at least comparable to the ones that usually populate the trivia show in the morning. All right, here we go. I'm going to give you a list in order of most to least. And the question is, to what do the most and least refer? So here's the list. Number one, coffee with Bailey's Irish cream. That's the most. Then a double scotch, then a milkshake, and the least is soda water. So my question is, most and least what and uh, there were some answers that were suggested uh, this morning things like calories and sugar and uh, neither of course is correct so once more here are the four choices coffee with bailey's irish cream a double scotch a milkshake soda water listed in order of most to least the question is most and least of what are we talking about and then we also have a question lingering over from last week, another rarity, and that was about Alka-Seltzer, which is promoted for relief of heartburn caused by excess stomach acidity. And nevertheless, it contains an acid, citric acid. So why does Alka-Seltzer contain citric acid? There's the challenge. You can meet it by calling us at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Uh, of course, uh, your questions don't have to be uh, based on what I've just mentioned. Uh, we're happy to try to answer any kind of uh, scientific question that you may have um, you know, encountered. Okay. Let me start out here with talking a little bit about quercetin, that's Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, uh, a supplement that you may have heard about uh, in terms of uh, either preventing or maybe even treating uh, COVID-19. This compound is uh, what we call a polyphenol. That, of course, is a description of its molecular uh, structure. And it belongs to a large family of compounds called the flavonoids, which are found in a large variety of fruits and vegetables. And they are of interest because they have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. Well, dietary supplements of quercetin have received attention from researchers. Let me uh, talk first uh, about a couple of other studies not relating to COVID, then we'll get to COVID. In a placebo-controlled trial of men suffering from chronic prostatitis, which is an inflammation of, of, the, of the prostate, it can be very painful, 67% of the patients taking quercetin had a significant alleviation of symptoms, while only 20% of the men in the placebo group showed improvement. Then uh, the issue of male cyclists. 
who were asked to train at maximum intensity for three hours a day for three days. Those who received a daily supplement of one gram of quercetin, that's quite a large dose, suffered far fewer chest infections than cyclists who were given a placebo. While it's well known that athletes who engage in extreme physical activity are more prone to chest infections, so are soldiers who are under great physical stress during missions. Why? Probably because their immune system is weakened and is unable to fend off microbes effectively. Well, researchers believe that quercetin helps ward off infection by binding to viruses and bacteria and prevent these from replicating. Now that, of course, brings us back to uh, COVID-19. Doesn't everything these days. Well, there are two very interesting recent studies that in fact evaluated the efficacy of quercetin supplementation as an adjuvant therapy in uh, COVID-19 treatment. And these were pretty well done studies. Uh, one of these was a prospective, randomized, blinded study uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal that looked at 152 patients who had uh, confirmed COVID-19 infection through regular testing. Well, half of these were prescribed uh, standard care and the others took the regular standard care with quercetin uh, uh, supplementation given twice daily. Uh, that amounted to 400 milligrams of quercetin uh, every day. And what they wanted to look at uh, was the need for uh, hospitalization, length of hospitalization, whether or not patients would require uh, non-invasive oxygen therapy, that is just you know oxygen cannula through the nose, and whether or not they would progress to intensive care and uh, heaven forbid uh, death. Results were pretty interesting. So the patients needing hospitalization uh, were 22 in the standard care group and only seven in the quercetin group. That's a significant difference. Patients needing non-invasive oxygen therapy, 15 in the standard care group compared to only one in the quercetin group. None of the patients in the quercetin group progressed to the intensive care unit, while eight did in the standard care group, and three of those died. That's pretty uh, impressive. Uh, because this uh, was seen as a successful result, uh, the researchers followed it up with another study, uh, this time on 42 outpatients uh, with uh, COVID-19, and again, they were prescribed either standard care or supplemented with uh, a quercetin. And during a two-week trial, uh, in which the protocol for the quercetin group was to take three tablets of quercetin supplement per day for the first seven days and two per day for the remainder of the study. And again, what they found was a significant uh, reduction in symptoms in the first week and a reduction in uh, hospitalization. So all of this looks pretty good. Quercetin is a naturally occurring substance. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, one might ask the question, can you eat uh, foods that contain quercetin to give us an uh, equivalent amount of, uh, of dosage? Unfortunately, the answer here is, is no. Uh, while quercetin um, is found in a variety of fruits and vegetables, the amounts are not comparable to what was used in these supplements. Uh, 400 milligrams were used in the supplements per day. Well, the largest source of quercetin naturally occurring is raw capers. That's the fruit of the 
caper bush. 200 grams of these would do. Well, 200 grams, I suppose it's, you know, it's, it's, it's doable, but it's really not practical. No one is going to eat 200 grams of capers per day. Well, what about berries? Because they are chock full of all kinds of polyphenols. However, uh, quercetin is, is uh, in relatively low concentration. Blueberries, for example, they contain about 20 milligrams per 100 grams, which means that to um, uh, get a comparable dose to what I mentioned in the study, you'd have to eat about uh, two kilos of uh, blueberries a day. Now, I like blueberries and I try to eat them every day, but uh, I don't think I could manage uh, two kilos. So where, do, where does all of this uh, leave us? Uh, there is some hope here that uh, quercetin, but in the form of supplements, not in form of foods that contain quercetin, may indeed have a role to play if it is used early on after diagnosis of a COVID-19 uh, infection. Uh, of course, uh, one wants to see bigger studies, longer-term studies. Uh, we can't, you know, base too much emphasis on, on uh, these uh, two relatively small studies. But nevertheless, it is encouraging because, uh, you know, these effects were statistically significant. And furthermore, uh, quercetin has been certainly studied uh, enough that uh, we know it doesn't present any risks. And quercetin supplements are, you know, available. That uh, they're not even very expensive. You can buy them on Amazon. You can find them in in, in pharmacies. I, I would, of course, like to see uh, another bigger uh, randomized trial, but um, uh, I think at at this point we can uh, say that there is some hope here. And perhaps, of course, there are other kind of polyphenols that may also help reduce the uh, infection rate or perhaps the uh, the inflammation. Uh, as you know, I'm I'm not a big proponent of of dietary supplements because most of them, of course, do not have uh, evidence, and um, there are also all kinds of false claims that are made on on behalf of these. But uh, uh, of course. Uh, just because there are a lot of rotten apples in that barrel uh, doesn't mean that all of the apples are, are rotten. And incidentally, apples are also a pretty good source of, of quercetin. Uh, but uh, again, you'd have to eat a lot of apples to, to match the doses in, in the supplement. On the other hand, of course, we know that there are all kinds of benefits from eating fruits and vegetables. Uh, and uh, if they contain uh, some quercetin, that is just an added benefit. All right, uh, so uh, I have the two questions hanging out there. How come Alka-Seltzer contains citric acid, even though it is meant to counteract uh, hyperacidity in the stomach? And the other question was, uh, given the list of coffee with Bailey's Irish cream, a double scotch, a milkshake, soda water, these are listed in order of most to least. The question is, what do the most and the least refer to? If you know the answer, 514-790-0800, or you can text me at 514-800. Right now, we'll check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
Okay, I've had some uh, interesting responses to the uh, question about the most to least. Uh, someone said calories. No, that is uh, is not correct. Uh, someone else suggested uh, most to least amount of vitamins. No, that is not uh, not correct either. Uh, someone else said very inventive that color most intense to least intense color. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, someone else said most expensive to least expensive. No, uh, I mean scotch can be much more expensive than than uh, you know coffee with uh, uh, Bailey's Irish. So none of those are correct. We are still looking for the uh, correct answer. On uh, the other hand, we have some callers on hold. Let's see if they can come up with it. Let's go to Mara. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, is the answer acidity? No, it isn't acidity either. Okay, All right, thank you. so we're, we're slowly eliminating uh, possibilities. Uh, let's go to Bridget. Hi. I Hi. think it's carbs. It's what? The carbs, carbohydrates. Carbs? Yeah. Uh, no. no. No, not carbs either. No, okay. no. Uh, certainly a milkshake can have a lot more carbs than, uh, than scotch. All right, let's go to James. Oh. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, well, I don't really know for sure, uh, but uh, concerning the calories, I mean, I did, my wife actually thought about that this morning, and I looked up, and it is roughly true, but that's not the answer you're looking for. So I was going to guess a greenhouse gas uh, footprint. No, oh, that is bad. not uh, that is not it either. But uh, All right, way, let's... It, it is, well, well, concerning the Alka-Seltzer, I was thinking it's to make it bubble when it's in the... Yes, in, okay, in the that, that, is, that is right, exactly. The, uh, the reason for the uh, uh, citric acid in the Alka-Seltzer is essentially to impress you with the, uh, the bubbling. And uh, as you know, sodium bicarbonate, if it reacts with any kind of acid, it will form carbon dioxide uh, bubbles. Anyway, Alka-Seltzer contains bicarbonate in addition to aspirin. And when you drop the tablets into water, it will fizz. And uh, that medication actually goes back a long time. It was introduced in 1931 by the Dr. Miles Medicine Company, uh, marketed for minor aches and pains, inflammation, fever, headache, heartburn, stomachache, indigestion, hangover. And the, uh, the slogan, the initial slogan that was so popular, do you remember what that was? That was plop, plop, fizz, fizz. That was a famous uh, slogan. And it was advertised by the Speedy character who wore uh, a hat, which was an Alka-Seltzer tablet. And uh, tell you another interesting little tidbit here. In 1976, there was a TV commercial. And instead of dropping one tablet into a glass of water, as they did in previous commercials, they dropped two tablets into a glass of water. You know what that did? It doubled the sales. A <laughs> simple thing like that, doubled the sales. And that's kind of uh, uh, reminiscent of, um, of one of the, 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 you know, the, the best ideas in, in marketing, which was for shampoos. When they put on the label of shampoos, wash, rinse, and repeat, when they added the repeat, it doubled the sales of shampoos. 
because the fact is you don't need to repeat uh, un unless somehow you've been swimming in a pool of oil. You don't have to repeat. A single washing with shampoo is, is uh, certainly sufficient. But uh, when you just add the instruction repeat, you can uh, just uh, double the sales. All right. So the Alka-Seltzer uh, question has been answered. And as you know, I then replace it with another uh, question. So let's go to this one. We'll go back to 1832 when Scottish physician Thomas Latta pioneered the treatment of cholera victims with an intravenous injection. What did he inject intravenously? So again, this is 1832. That's a long time ago. So Scottish physician Thomas Latta pioneered treating cholera victims with an intravenous injection. What did he inject? Again, if you know the answer, 514-790-0800, or you text to 514-800. Uh, okay, the uh, more people texting in, all kinds of possibilities to uh, my question. No, it has nothing to do with uh, expense. Uh, let me give you a hint. Uh, you know that my background is chemistry. And that is what prompted the question. All right, so uh, give that uh, a little thought about why someone who is uh, interested in chemistry would pose this particular uh, uh, question. Okay, uh, let me uh, talk uh, for a moment about uh, homeopathy, which I, I've mentioned many times before. Uh, but uh, some interesting little tidbit has uh, come my way. Uh, homeopathy, of course, is a 200-year-old practice based on the notion that like cures like, meaning that a substance that causes symptoms in a healthy person, if sufficiently diluted, can alleviate those symptoms in a sick person. Dilutions generally are such that there isn't even a trace of the original substance in the final remedy, if you want to call it a remedy. According to homeopathic theory, Potency increases with dilution, a concept that flies in the face of basic chemistry and biology. While there is debate about whether a homeopathic remedy is just a placebo, there is agreement that such preparations are not dangerous since non-existent molecules can hardly be expected to produce any sort of toxic uh, reaction. How is it then that a case report in the Journal of Clinical Toxicology describes a case of a 50-year-old man who ended up in the emergency room after taking a homeopathic solution, a solution that contained belladonna, commonly known as deadly nightshade. Now, of course, belladonna certainly can be dangerous in a high enough concentration. It contains a compound called atropine. Uh, however, the homeopathic preparation uh, should contain essentially no atropine because of the dilution. Well, in this case, the homeopathic preparation was prescribed to alleviate stomach pains. Why? Because atropine, which is the active ingredient in belladonna, can cause stomach pain when the dose is high enough. So by the theory of like cures like, an extreme dilution of atropine should alleviate stomach problems. The problem was that in this case, the alternative practitioner 
did not dilute the solution properly, and the patient ended up taking four and a half milligrams of atropine, which is a potentially toxic dose. He presented in the emergency room with blurred vision, inability to speak, dizziness, and inability to walk. Luckily, he made an uneventful recovery, but this case highlights the possibility of manufacturing errors in homeopathic preparations. Just an interesting little corollary to uh, treatment with uh, homeopathic, quote, remedies. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check CTV News and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. You just heard a, a promo uh, about raising uh, money for a uh, cancer center at uh, Jewish General. And uh, I want to just add my uh, little bit about that. Uh, I, uh, of course, uh, promote uh, raising money for cancer research, because uh, unfortunately, as you probably know, uh, I have been affected uh, the, by that when uh, uh, five years ago, my wife passed away from uh, uh, basically a brain tumor. So, of course, I, I do support uh, any kind of uh, fundraising for, for cancer because that's the only way that we will ever uh, solve this, this problem. And uh, GBM or glioblastoma is a particularly treacherous form of, of cancer, and we need a lot of research that. So uh, supporting this in terms of, of um, you know, donation, I think, is, is very important. And... Um, my uh, my girlfriend uh, Jody Zipkin is going to ride uh, in in this, and uh, if anyone wants to support her, uh, it would be most uh, welcome. And uh, you just go to the site that was mentioned, and uh, you have a choice of you know whom to support. And uh, the more money that is raised, uh, the better uh, it is for cancer research. And uh, so if you want to support her, it would be uh, most welcome. And uh, I think you can just look, uh, you know, on the site and, and see who you want to uh, support. So if you want to do that, Z-I-P-K-I-N would be the, the one that uh, I would favor. I think any way that we raise money for cancer research is, is, is very, very welcome. All right. Now, a lot of people, of course, are still giving me all kinds of answers about the, the question, the list that I, I suggested. They keep coming up with calories. No, it is not calories. Uh, certainly, a, a milkshake would have more calories than coffee with a, a bit of uh, Bailey's Irish uh, cream in it. And uh, no, it is not sugar uh, either. Uh, again, one final time before I give the answer Remember, we're talking about chemistry here. So it has something to do with the chemical composition of these uh, substances. All right, I've still got the other question about the Scottish physician, 1832, uh, Thomas Latta, who pioneered the treatment of cholera victims with an intravenous injection. My question is, what did he inject? 
Again, if you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800. If you don't like that question, you know what? I'm feeling uh, in a good mood today, so I will give you another question. Prior to the Anatomy Act of 1832, again, we're back to 1832, in the UK, the only corpses that could legally be used for dissection belonged to who? Prior to 1832, when the Anatomy Act was passed in the UK, the only corpses that could legally be used for dissection belonged to who? All right, so there you go, 514-790-0800 or 514-800. You have so many opportunities now to show your brilliance. Uh, I think we may actually have an answer. Let me just see. Yes. We do have a we do have a correct answer. Uh, it was a long time coming, but uh, Nick came up with it. Very good, Nick. After a few failed tries, uh, you did come up with the answer. It is indeed the total number of identifiable chemical compounds, and uh, of course there is a reason that uh, you know I, I asked this uh, this question uh, because I want to talk about the chemical complexity of of life. Um, indeed, Bailey's ice cream, I, <laughs> ice cream, Bailey's Irish cream uh, with coffee takes the cake in this case by far. Coffee contains over a thousand compounds that have been identified, and a similar number are found in whiskey, which is, of course, the main ingredient in, in uh, the Irish cream, but it also has cocoa in it, and cocoa which of course is what is used to make chocolate, also has about a thousand different compounds that have been identified. So indeed, when we consider uh, coffee with a dash of Bailey's Irish cream in it, we are talking about over 3,000 compounds. 3,000 compounds. Uh, then, as we go down the, the row here, uh, a double scotch. Well, scotch, of course, scotch whiskey is also a complex uh, entity, but uh, not nearly as complex as when it is combined with coffee. So that would contain roughly 800 to 1,000 uh, compounds. A milkshake, uh, at most, would be several hundred, of course, depending on what the flavor is. I mean, if you put some strawberry flavoring in there, uh, the strawberry extract would, would have a lot of components, but nothing compared to, to coffee. And the last, of course, is soda water. And soda water would be the least complex. It's mostly H2O and whatever happens to be dissolved in, in, in that uh, water. So, yes, that is the uh, correct answer. It is chemical complexity. And indeed, we live in a chemically complex world. When you're sipping that coffee laced with Bailey's Irish cream, you're consuming over 3,000 compounds. Well, that's pretty impressive. Now, there's another side to this, though. Among the compounds that you'll find in the coffee are carcinogens like acrylamide, formaldehyde. And of course, in the Irish, uh, in Bailey's Irish, you also have ethanol, which is also a carcinogen. But of course, there are also a host of antioxidants that are considered to be anti-carcinogens. If you want to add a slice of cake, you'll be adding hundreds of more compounds. So as you drink and eat, 
you will also be inhaling some of the 3000 or so compounds that are exhaled by anyone nearby, as well as numerous chemicals released from vehicles, from plants, from trees, from animals, from cleaning agents, from cosmetics, from inks, and from a host of industries. The point is that it is virtually impossible to estimate the number of chemicals to which we are regularly exposed, but it would be in the many thousands. Many of these, if studied in cell culture or in some species of animal, would at some dose cause some adverse effect. To tease out the compounds that could conceivably affect health at a dose to which people can actually be exposed can be, in some cases, simple, but mostly incredibly challenging. For example, naturally occurring amygdalin in apple seeds would be a problem if a cupful of seeds were consumed since the compound can release cyanide. But of course, eating an apple clearly poses no risk, even if the whole core is consumed with the, with the seeds. Smoking a single cigarette is safe enough. A pack, of habit, pack a day habit is not. But when it comes to long-term exposure to trace amounts of potential carcinogens or endocrine disruptors, the Petri dish or the laboratory rat can furnish clues but cannot provide definitive answers. We are left to make an educated guess. Now, the reason that I bring this up, because this past week, a question has arisen about benzophenone which is found in a number of sunscreens and whether or not this is dangerous. So I want to discuss that, but first we'll check with Mark Shaloub to see where traffic is going or not going. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, still two outstanding questions uh, about Scottish physician Thomas Lotta, who in 1832 treated cholera with intravenous injection. Question is, what did he inject? And prior to the Anatomy Act of 1832 in the UK, the only corpses that could legally be used for dissection belonged to who? 514-790-0800, if you know the answer, or text it to 514-800. Now, before the break, I was talking about uh, the fact that when it comes to long-term exposure to trace amounts of chemicals, it is very difficult to know what the effect uh, may be. And the chemical in question now is benzophenone, one of the thousands of chemicals that can enter our body through inhalation, ingestion, or through uh, the skin, that is dermal exposure. Well, based on animal studies, it is a carcinogen and an endocrine disruptor, and thus merits attention. Benzophenone occurs in small amounts in some fruits, such as grapes, uh, but it is produced in large amounts industrially. Why? Because of its ability to protect materials from damage by ultraviolet light. So these would include some plastics, some paints, inks, adhesives, insecticides, nail polishes. But benzophenone is also a breakdown product of octocrylene, a common sunscreen ingredient. 
Should we shun sunscreens with octocrylene because benzophenone has been ranked by the International Agency for Research on Cancer as possibly carcinogenic to humans? Because at high doses, it causes tumors in rats. That's where IARC gets its data. All I can do here, as I suggested earlier, is to make what is hopefully an educated guess. Because of course, we cannot do the requisite study. We cannot subject humans in different doses of, of uh, some carcinogenic compound and study these people over a long term to see what happens to them. The fact is that the doses that are given to rats in order to trigger some form of cancer are very, very large, far larger than anything to which we are exposed. But we also know that sunscreens protect us from the damaging ultraviolet light uh, emanating from the sun. That's beyond doubt. Skin cancer is linked to excess ultraviolet exposure. So we want to be sure to protect ourselves against that. Is there a, a risk with the benzophenone? Of course, it's as I said, it's impossible to say because we cannot do the requisite study. Uh, I would think that if there is a risk, it is extremely, extremely small because the amounts that end up in the sunscreen are, are trace amounts. Once again, as is so often the case, we have to weigh risks against benefits. And the benefit of using sunscreens outweigh any kind of risk. This past week, we also had a new report about climate change uh, from uh, the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this is extremely, extremely alarming. Now, they looked at 14,000 pieces of scientific literature Hundreds of experts were involved in this from 145 countries. So this is not, you know, one or two people making some sort of guess at what is going on here. They looked at a tremendous amount of data and came to the conclusion that there's no doubt here. We are experiencing a warming of the earth and there is no doubt that this is due to some form of human activity. Because of course, we run our cars, we fly our airplanes, and industry spews out huge amounts of carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide does not readily dissipate in the atmosphere. It has a very, very, very long uh, half-life. Add to this methane, which is also released whenever we use natural gas. Uh, of course, there's also the burping of cows and uh, releasing it from their other orifices. All of that is, is significant. And uh, the report is very clear on the fact that the changes that we are seeing in, in weather conditions, the fires that we're seeing, the, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the uh, rise in uh, ocean level, all of this is due to, to warming. Now, of course, there's a lot of detail in this study, uh, and uh, there's no need for us to go into it, it here. You can read all about it. I mean, it's in a, easy enough to uh, to Google, and uh, all you have to do is look up uh, intergovernmental inter panel on climate change, and you get all the all the details. 
uh, this is real. And uh, if something isn't done in the uh, right now, uh, we're looking at uh, even more catastrophic results than, than we're already uh, experiencing. The scary thing is that because of the longevity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, they've calculated that even if we were able to totally reduce, totally eliminate carbon dioxide emissions right now, it would still take at least 30 years until the global warming would uh, would stop. So anyway, I urge you to to look into this uh, because this is not not one of those you know uh, far flung uh, uh, theories. Uh, this is very real, and uh, it is going to have a significant effect on on life. Okay, uh, let's uh, see what people have come up with. Yes, well, someone has come up with the answer to uh, the question about uh, who the bodies belong to. Uh, indeed, prior to the Anatomy Act of 1832, passed in the UK, the only corpses that could legally be used for dissection belonged to executed murderers. Well, interesting enough, not everyone abided by that restriction. William Harvey, who was active before 1832 as a physician, and of course is noted for his elucidation of blood circulation, believe it or not, he studied anatomy by participating in the dissection of his sister and his father. He was certainly interested in anatomy, right? Anyway, as doctors became more and more convinced that studying anatomy was uh, key to unraveling the mysteries of how the body functions, some of these doctors collaborated with grave robbers to obtain their specimens. Uh, in response, there were some people who actually buried their relatives in sealed lead coffins to prevent any desecration by these resurrectionists, as these grave robbers were called. <clears throat> so anyway, the Anatomy Act strived to curb this practice by allowing physicians legal access to corpses that relatives did not claim. And those were mostly the poor who worked in workhouses. Uh, the passage of the act was also accelerated by the 1828 murders in Edinburgh by the duo of William Burke and William Hare, who strangled at least 16 people. Why? So they could sell their corpses to anatomists. So the government said, well, we sure don't want any of this. And they put an end to it. Some people were opposed to the act because they objected to poor people's bodies being used without consent. Okay, so we've had a lot of answers to my questions there today, and hopefully you learned something about chemical complexity uh, as well. And uh, we have once more quickly run out of time. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>